What happened to music that meant something? Like the Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? This is not a test. This is rock and roll. Michael of Passion Pit disguises soul music as dance pop that can fill arenas around the country. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Michael Angelakos joins us for a very candid interview and a stripped-down performance. Then, later in the show, Greg and I review the debut album from the genre-defying artist, Shamir. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, Jim, and uh, later on in the show, we're going to review this new album by a brand new artist named Shamir, Shamir Bailey out of Las Vegas. Every year, we go down to South by Southwest Music Conference in Austin, Texas, and this year, I got a chance to see Shamir and loved what I saw. You know, a lot of times we talk about these artists at South by Southwest, and you kind of wonder, whatever happens to these guys? Do they ever do anything after we rave about them? Well, Shamir's debut album is out now. We're going to tell you what we think later on in the show. First, we have some music news. The thrill is gone. It's gone away from me. The thrill is gone, baby. The thrill is gone away from me. That is The Thrill Is Gone from B.B. King, dead at the age of 89. He died a few days ago in Las Vegas. If you know one B.B. King song, that is probably it. That came out in the late 60s. It had that beautiful string part, kind of controversial at the time, you know, blues artists using strings on a record. Well, it turned uh, B.B. King into a mainstream star. He was already a titan of the blues at that point. But as a result of that song, he ends up becoming a national, international star, really. And I think King's legacy is as an, a worldwide ambassador of the blues. Even until almost the day of his death, he was playing shows all over the world. I yeah. mean, the man never stopped. Well, and he obviously took great joy in performing. Whenever Lucille was in his hands, <laughs> yeah. his guitar, right? And, and, and I think that smile is incongruous when people think of the blues. But my favorite BB quote was, as long as people have problems, the blues can never die. The blues <laughs> is cathartic. It purges you of the pain. That's why he loved to play the music. Well, and you mentioned Lucille, and that is a great point. The dialogue between Lucille, his trusted guitar, and his voice, that conversation they were having. You noticed how they finished each other's sentences. Yeah. Lucille never talked over B.B. B.B. never talked over Lucille. But he they didn't finished sing each other's when the guitar quotes. was speaking, no. And that style was hugely influential. If you listen to a guitar player, especially like Clapton, Eric Clapton, or Peter Green of the early Fleetwood Mac that legion of British blues rock guitarists in the 60s. They were all incredibly influenced uh, by B.B.'s playing. B.B. King grew up in Mississippi, the cradle of the modern blues. But his first big move to Memphis when he became a man, an adult, was really the move that created his legacy. 
He started out as a radio DJ, and I think that stentorian voice, that presence that he had on stage, had a lot to do with those radio DJ years in Memphis, and at the same time started cutting records. His first big hit was cut in 1951, uh, a cover version of a classic blues called Three O'Clock Blues, and B.B. defined his style on that song. The call and response between his voice and his guitar became one of the most iconic sounds in blues history, and it was the basis of B.B. King's career. Here's Three O'Clock Blues from 1951 by B.B. King on Sound Opinions. Now it is three o'clock in the morning Can't even close my eyes oh, three o'clock in the morning, baby Can't even close my Three O'Clock Blues by the man they called Beale Street Blues Boy, B.B. King, dead at the age of 89. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's Passion Pit performing My Brother Taught Me How to Swim from their latest album, Kindred. Passion Pit's essentially the brainchild of one guy, 28-year-old Michael Angelakos. While based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Angelakos and his band exploded into worldwide success after putting out just a few songs. Remember that old site, MySpace? Well, that's how he got started. Fans and critics have latched onto this unique combination of indie rock and dance group. But I think what really separates the band from a lot of the other contenders in the mainstream is those lyrics. Really dark, really introspective, where Angelakos is wrestling openly with a lot of these personal demons that have come to dominate his life, addiction and mental illness. And that contrast between the light, kind of danceable music and those dark lyrics is really what makes Passion Pit so interesting. Greg, that's a big part of why we gave Kindred a double buy-it when we reviewed it just last week. But Michael Angelakos visited our studio back in 2012 when he was touring behind Passion Pit's second album, Gossamer. We sat down and had a very frank discussion about the band's career as well as the struggles in his personal life. 
We started the conversation by asking Angelakos about whether he was the one who made the fateful decision to put those early songs up on MySpace. Yes, I did. And I remember the conversation I had with my friend about MySpace where he was like, you need to put your stuff in MySpace. And I was like, only emo bands do that. <laughs> and I was like, I can't do that. I can't fall into that trap. And uh, I was, I really wasn't interested in making it into this commercial project. I just, uh, it made itself almost, uh, which is, I suppose, the nicest way of it happening. And ain't it weird to be here now, what, five or six years later, and like, remember MySpace? Remember what that was? <laughs> well, well, I can't even believe I'm still playing these songs. That's the thing. Uh, you know? like, yeah. That's the other thing. Is that I usually would write a song, and then I'd, I would write songs for a show, and then the show would be over, mm-hmm. and that would be it. I'd move and on. And the songs right? were over. Yeah, and that's yeah. it. The fact that I'm still playing Sleepyhead is just the most outrageous thing to me. Well, how did that song in particular? So that's the song that really introduced you to the vast majority of people, the one that everybody first fell in love with. How did it come together? That started with the sample, Mary O'Hara's version of Oroma Bahajin. And I just kind of... I mean, I didn't even have it properly locked to a tempo in the program or anything. I didn't even know what I was doing. I just kind of somehow figured out a way to make it work. And uh, I just built a song around it, and um, I had it in my head, and it, I guess the recording in total was about two hours. Mm, well. So, I mean, the song's only two and a half minutes long. So, I, again, it just goes, it, it just, you know, says a lot about the, the way in which I was working, which is basically just throwing things at, onto the screen, seeing what 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 worked. You said it was like fire around the brim. Burning solid, burning thin, the burning rim. Light stars, burning holes right through the dark. Looking fire like soul water to my eyes. You were one inch from the edge of this bed. listen to that song now and it doesn't seem like it's a bedroom recording or this really modest recording as you describe it sounds like something that you could hear on the radio next to you know a rihanna song or a kanye west song it's got this these these big values in the in the hooks your voice is another thing that's striking about it it almost seems like it's coming from for me when i heard it the first time i go who is this new r&b singer were you listening to those kind of records, the Rihanna records and Kanye records? Was that having any kind of influence at all in the way that particular recording came out? Sure. I mean, I've always been a huge pop fan, and I, I love writing pop songs. Mm-hmm. I've always liked writing pop songs uh, since I was a kid. Um, but those artists, like you know, radio top 40 artists, um, they weren't influences, but I certainly liked I mean, I think the, the intelligence behind a lot of those songs is definitely undermined by... Um, sometimes the artist, but I never really, you know, had any kind of, you know, idea of what I wanted, where I wanted the music to go or what, you know, what palette I was working with or, you know, I just kind of naturally have always been writing hook driven songs. 
I suppose that top 40 music and especially passion pit music, it kind of calls from those, specifically that world. But it always just does something a little bit to the left to mm, sure. just veer out of. It, mm. it can never just go there. Right. I have to like take the long road, <laughs> you know, where everyone just just goes straight over. You but, know? The, but the sounds are amazing, as you said. I think the production values are way ahead of anything that's being created in in the rock spectrum right now. You know, that, that's the thing that's amazing to me. I mean, but but the, some of the like Kanye has always been someone who's tried to do that. You know, he's mm-hmm. always been. He, he goes crazy over a kick drum, you know? Sure. The other thing I got to ask you about this early part of your career, um, you were talking about seriously starting media and, you know, thinking about being a critic or a reporter or journalist or whatever. But you obviously have some training, or it seems like you have some training. I mean, you play, we just heard you playing, just tinkling around the keyboards here. I go, eh, that guy's had a few lessons or something. He's learned something. And I know, I know the voice. I've heard people say four octaves. I mean, is that mm-hmm. an exaggeration? No. Where, where does that come from? I have no idea. I mean, my father was a music teacher. I was taught guitar for years, but my guitar teacher tried to like, restructure the way he taught me because he saw talent, but I just refused to learn the same way as other mm. people. I guess I'm a bit of a jerk in that sense, but I just I don't, I don't hear things the same way. As, I don't. I can't study things the same way as other people. That's why I didn't go to Berkeley. My parents refused to let me go to music school because they said, "Well, if you do that, you're going to never want to play music again. Hmm. You need to have it. It needs to be something that's like your own world. You can't. It can't be the only world you know." Mm-hmm. And they were ultimately right. We got this piano here. Are you going to play a song for us? I think I'm going to play a song for you. Yeah. Now, what are you going to play? I'm going to play Constant Conversations. Excellent. staring out the floor The conversation's moderated By the noisy streets below I never want to hurt you, baby I'm just a mess with a name and a price But now I'm drunker than before they Told me drinking doesn't make me nice You never know where some people Yes, some people been hurting me You can tell by look By the slightest crook in the neck Or the blink of an eye Well, then they'll say what they say And they'll do what they do Well, that doesn't mean a goddamn thing You can listen if you want You can listen if you don't Yeah, they'll talk Yeah, they'll even sing Well, everybody now Someday you're gonna need to find some other kind of place 
That was Michael Angelakos of Passion Pit playing Constant Conversations live on Sound Opinions. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with more conversation and another performance from Passion Pit. Then, later in the show, Greg drops a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that's a bit of the song Folds in Your Hands by Passion Pit from its first album, Manners. This week, we're revisiting our 2012 conversation with lead singer and band founder Michael Angelakos. Passion Pit burst onto the scene in 2009 with the help of MySpace and soon found itself playing major festivals around the world. It was three years after the release of the debut Manners before the sophomore album Gossamer came along, and then another three years for the latest record Kindred, which Greg and I both gave an enthusiastic buy-it to just last week. That's a lot of time for a band to maintain momentum. So I wondered, what took so long? I love when people go, um, and then you had this three-year hiatus. <laughs> yeah. And, I'm, and I keep thinking to myself, I toured for about two and a half of those years. I, I don't know what... harder in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't tour where you live, but I toured all, uh, in all these other places. Yeah, no, uh, it, it was it was definitely a break for a lot of people. And I, maybe that it was to our, our, you know, our advantage because, um, you know, gave people a little bit of a... There's some breathing space, you know. So you're you're making these records. Uh, they're pretty private affairs, I get. I, I know that I think Manners was made with you and one other band member, right, mm-hmm. basically. The EP obviously was your thing. Gossamer was pretty much a solo record from what I can gather. And then you take it out and play in front of, you know, potentially tens of thousands of people, as you will, on Lollapalooza weekend here. What's more satisfying to you? I always look at it as though there are two different types of passion pit. There's the studio passion pit and there's the live passion pit. And each passion pit serves a completely different purpose. In the studio, it's a very, very drawn-out affair. It is very insular. Sometimes it's it's a lot of fun, and other times it's really makes you want to pull your hair out. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I think what's happened is that we, we realize that people really react in a live setting. And I've grown to really love the live audience quite a bit because it's so the way that the the vocal sound itself works is it's it's kind of begging for audience participation you know and so when people are singing along to all these songs i mean the lyrics may be a little harrowing or whatever but um when they sing along the sonically it works Mm -hmm. so well and it's just it's so overwhelming and uh and emotional for me and and people really there's this communal it's it's much more communal than you would ever think and so it's just a whole other world that you enter when you get on stage it's not like you're performing for someone you're performing with people You're listening to Sound Opinions. We're here with Passion Pit, Michael Angelakos. And, uh, Michael, that's a great point about the, the celebration that goes with this music. Because I think if you listen to it on a surface level, it is celebratory. It's up. You know, there's a feeling of anthemic quality to the, to the music. 
And and you wonder sometimes, like, I wonder if they're really paying attention to what they're singing along with, you know, especially some of these recent songs. I'm wondering if you're thinking, yeah, some of the, as you said, some of this, some of the stuff is pretty harrowing. Um, so it, do you feel like there's a disconnect there? Well, when we reviewed it, Michael, before you answer, you know, we called it soul music. I mean, I think that that's all great soul music, you know, is that, that, <laughs> that sometimes the lyrics are, are coming yeah. from a dark place, but the music is about uplift. I've tried to separate myself from it. And what, or what I'm representing with the music is, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be reflected in the performance, for instance. But, um, yeah, no, it's, it, it is pretty dark music, and I've always just written that kind of music. Particularly this record uh, got pretty dark. I think that's probably one of the best parts about it, is that somehow we're able to bring people in even, even with that mentality. Um, it's as though, you know, I don't, there's no director's commentary. I'm not going to sit there and explain every single song to everyone. I don't really need to. The point is, is that it, 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 there's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of, there are a lot of different kinds of sentiments being talked about on the record and people will take it in so many different ways. And I think at the end of the day, when you, when you bring it to a live situation, that's all leveled out and it's just this onslaught of emotion. See, sure. he was saying before he didn't want to be emo, but he wound up emo. <laughs> you're, you're emo-er than emo, man. I, I, yeah, but the emo guys make you feel depressed because the music sounds depressing. And I think you're, I get depressed when I listen to like, most emo, yeah. You know, here, is, here are these great pop anthems that, like, again, if you just tuned out, you know, every word, you would think, man, like I said, it's, it belongs on a radio next to Rihanna or Katy Perry. And then if you really pay attention to what's going on, it's like this whole other level where you're going, oh. Well, that no. juxtaposition is very important mm-hmm. because the euphoria is supposed to be blended in with the terrible, depressive uh, you know, content. But um, that euphoria is something that I've always latched on to. Mm-hmm. I've loved, I've always loved writing, you know, and passion has been a great vehicle for it. So I've just kept going with it. Um, you know, you know, the second records are funny. Um, everyone always asks <laughs> about the second record and what what you do with a second record and and you know do you do you do you know a congratulations like MJMT where they were like we're going to be ourselves we're going to do what we want to do this is it and I think the record's great of course it turned off a lot of fans of their earlier work because it's a lot different I thought that it was the next step for Bashment was just to amplify everything by you know a great number it, it's something that I've always I didn't want to stray from the sound. I just wanted to build upon it. And uh, at the end of the day, I think pop music is not something that has to necessarily be, you don't necessarily need to, like like you were saying, write lyrics that match the music. And that's what so many people are used to, I mm. suppose. You know, like yeah. there's this type of song, there are these kind of lyrics that go with it. I've always found the dichotomy to be the most... The, most interesting, interesting. Yeah. Well, it's like the you know it's a string swelling scene in the movie where you know the the you know the woman is dying of cancer at the end and the strings swell and they're like jamming this emotion down your face like you're supposed to cry now because this yeah. music is telling you and your music is kind of sending it's it's not telling you how to feel it, well, it's it there there's many things you could be feeling at that well, life at this is moment. really confusing mm-hmm. life is a really confusing thing and um, I always have. Uh, there's never just one emotion you're feeling. There's always a, there's a, usually a slew of emotions, and I try to like make that as overwhelming as possible with with passion pit music. And I've always loved the juxtaposition. I've always thought that, that was just what worked. Mm-hmm. So I kept going. With it. Can you 
reminds me a lot of Nick Drake in that way, uh, especially the first two albums. The, the music is so uplifting, uh, but he's often singing about being in a dark place. And by the time he records his last album, he, he, he can't get up off the studio floor even to stand in front of the mic, you know. Yeah. But the music is beautiful, and the words are dark, but then they also hint at light. Right. Is there a little of that happening here, or am I just going off the rock critic ledge? Um, both. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think every guest we have should be a media studies yeah. expert. <laughs> yes, I, I, it's really nice that you bring that up. I, I think that that's kind of the that's the point. That's the point of the record. That's really the point of it. And and I mean, I went into it with a point in mind. Hmm. And some people just like putting together a collection of songs. This was a painstaking uh, process, and I wanted it to be a solid body of work. But it sounds like, if I may say this, it sounds like a very obsessive record in a lot of ways, because I heard stories about 120 tracks of music being filled up, and it's very layered. That's just what Pro Tools would allow. We had over over 200 Mm. for each, almost like, almost each track. It was insane. And then we just parsed through and figured out what worked. Did you ever feel like, I've I've completely gone through the rabbit hole now, I I don't know, (laughs) there's so much music here? All the time. And Mm -hmm. I'm told... All the time. It's about learning. And, you know, I haven't made many records in my lifetime, so, like this. So, you know, I'm just learning what works and what doesn't work and, you know, and what my limitations are and when to draw the line. And, you know, I'm 25 years old. I I think it's fun to make mistakes and, and figure out what you want to do from that point um, and be able to kind of go overboard and, and bring it back. Mm-hmm. That's a lot more fun than the other way around. Well, did it help to be working somewhere else? I mean, because you know, you know my bloody Valentine, Kevin mm-hmm. Shields, right? He was a genius, makes a brilliant album in 1991, and we haven't had new music since. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes a big advance from a record company, builds a studio in his house, and never leaves. Mm-hmm. You know, you, at some point, were going to get kicked out of that studio in New York when, you know, they stopped paying the bills. So, so there's a little bit of an element there. I can't go too obsessive here. Because the clock is ticking. I also had uh, a label that was pretty anxious because I wouldn't show them demos. Because mm. because the way passionate songs work, if I showed you a demo, you'd have no idea what the song sounded like mm. because it's not complete. It has to be complete. Mm. And so imagine a label dealing with that. I mean, I felt pretty bad by the end of it because during the making of it, I was just like, leave me alone, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but um, they they were so patient and mm. uh, they let me kind of do my thing. They knew that eventually I'd figure it out. And um, you can't really say that they do that for many artists. So I'm, mm. again, I'm utterly grateful for everything that I have. I, I, I'm, I'm an extraordinarily lucky artist. So. Cool. How about uh, another song, Michael? Sure. I'll do, um, I'll play Sleepyhead.
Beautiful stuff. That's Sleepyhead from Passion Pit on Sound Opinions, Michael Angelakos. Boy, you should do a whole album like that, man. <laughs> I've heard two songs with you at the piano, and your songs, uh, I, I would imagine they start, start in a similar place, very stripped down before they become these built-up things. But uh, is that true? Pretty much just you and the piano? Um, sometimes. I'll Be Alright was just guitar and, and vocals mm-hmm. first. and then. Uh, but a lot of times it'll, it'll be full production. Mm-hmm. Everything will come together all at once. So you have a sort of an orchestrated idea already in your head as as, as you're writing a song. Yeah, most of my songs come to me just the whole song, and mm-hmm. then I just kind of have to interpret it somehow. Well, we got to ask you, you you canceled a few dates, um, mental health issues, and the question I got the most when I mentioned to people that you were coming on the show for the last couple of weeks, how's he feeling? How's how's Michael feeling? You know, uh, it's just really bad timing. I'm feeling much better, but you know it's always it's a constant uphill battle. I've been dealing with uh, manic depression since I was about 17 years old, and it's just gotten worse and worse. And uh, it's something that is uh, the root of a, a lot. Of, I, mean, it's, I guess it, you can you can hear it in, in, in a lot of the songs, even the whole passion pit mechanism. It's kind of manic depressive, but uh, I'm feeling better. I, it's just it's just going to take a little bit of time to uh, fully adjust and get to a place where I feel like I'm able to dive headfirst into it again. I've you know I haven't been touring very much, and and it's a lot. It's a lot to tour, and it's a lot for people to, to talk about you, and it's a lot for people to have opinions about what you do, mm. and and uh, and I'm a really sensitive person, like you know most artists, you know. They don't like to say it, but they do care about what people think. And uh, I wasn't hiding or anything. I'm, and I'm not hiding by canceling the shows. I, I just I had to I had to do what was what was right, and what was recommended, and um, what was recommended was that I needed to, to take some time for myself and 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 get the proper help while I could before everything was full swing. So, like anyone, I mean, a lot of people deal with this. It's well, not you know. a lot of people do, and I just think you know. Thank you for talking about it the way you've been doing it, because uh, it doesn't get talked about a lot. People are certainly never as frank as you've been, not only with us but in other interviews. And I think it's it's really valuable. Talking about it is so unbelievable. I, I wasn't really allowed to talk about it until much later in my life. Mm-hmm. So um, the fact that I'm now, I, I just don't see how else I can really go about living without talking about it. I mean, because it's greatly affecting my life. And instead of lying and making up stories and lying about it or, you know, kind of circumventing the whole issue, it's a lot easier for me to just just say it. And yeah. actually, you know, 
hopefully some like you said someone somewhere benefits from it in some way and you know there are still things i'd like to keep to myself but uh it's it's you know people when people buy tickets to your shows and or they buy your album and they invest in you as an artist you you deserve, they deserve an explanation and that's the only reason i really opened up about it mm-hmm. you know and it's interesting too because the one message i got you know i think jim and i kind of came to the same conclusion about the record when I hear those uplifting songs and I started really processing what's going on in the lyrics and going, man, this is, you know, it's a tough listen in some ways. Um, but the, the message I got out of it was a, 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 sense, a sense of resilience. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, it's a cliche in a way, you know, music is therapy, but it seems like it's a, it's a healthy outlet for you to, to be able to do this and express yourself in this way. It's certainly a lot healthier than other <laughs> means mm. of, of dealing with it. Mm. Um, and it, it always has been, but I've never dealt with it in such a direct way. This record, particularly, was very direct, and also now I, I'm not so afraid to talk about it. And and the weight that is lifted when you do that, when you when you finally just admit that this is what you go through and this is what you have to deal with, and people do understand, and and they and 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 it makes your life a lot easier. And you keep being told like to keep it a secret and don't talk about it, but at the end of the day. The record is triumphant. I'm alive. I'm talking to you right now. Uh, I just, I think I just played two songs for you. <laughs> um, Pretty good record. Yeah. Uh, you know, I finished, and I finished the record, and I'm, st- you know, I'm still with my fiance. I'm still working on all these things in my life instead of giving up. And I'm still touring. That's a triumph for me. You know, for some people, that's just, that's, oh, well, I mean, that's, a given, mm-hmm. but no, that's actually a really big deal, and and I'm really proud of myself for pushing through it and finding a way to get to that point, get to this exact point. As this is a this is a big deal for me. Well, it's a big deal for us having you here, and we can't thank you enough for coming in, Michael Angelakos of Passion Pit. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. To see video of Michael Angelakos performing Passion Pit songs, visit soundopinions.org. To comment on this interview or anything we do on the show, give us a call at 888-859-1800. After a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Jim and I review the debut album from new Las Vegas artist Shamir. Then I drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is a little bit of the song Vegas, the opening track from Shamir's debut album, Ratchet. Greg, this kid is only 20 years old, but he is a musical omnivore, already been all over the map. Grew up playing country music on an upside-down acoustic guitar. He's been in an indie pop punk band. This is old-school Chicago house music following an EP that got a lot of buzz in 2014, his first full album. He's got an interesting partner here in manager and producer Nick Sylvester, Brooklyn-based former rock critic for Pitchfork and for uh, The Village Voice, now runs something called the God Mode label. Shamir is introducing himself to the world in a big way with this album. As I said, old school Chicago house music. We'll talk about what that means to us and to Shamir in a minute. But let's hear a track from the record first. This is Call It Off by Shamir Bailey from Ratchet on Sound Opinions. Call It Off from Shamir and his debut album, Ratchet. This is an album that doesn't really quite have a category. You mentioned Chicago House, and I really like that reference, Jim, but I think you can also say it's kind of a twisted R&B record. It's got some elements of punk rock in it, the way it's being approached, as well as soul. The way the degraded synthesizers sound, I mean, this does not sound like a pristine, pure record. It's very stripped down. It sounds almost like a junk shop collection of instruments being used here. You know, got rattling cowbells. You've got these kind of degraded synthesizers. You've got these old school house beats. And then you've got these songs, a song cycle. I really think you you can take it as like a dusk to dawn kind of travel log through Vegas. The kid grew up in Vegas. He's talking about it as a city of dreams and a city, most most of all, of broken dreams. A lot of promise, and then those promises are being shattered. I'm thinking of something like Frank Ocean with the Channel Orange record where he used Los Angeles as a backdrop for a lot of these songs. In the same way, Shamir is using Vegas as a backdrop for talking about the aspirations of youth culture as well as the way these dreams that they have are being shattered. Well, and 
the and in particular the black neighborhood North Town where he grew up in right. Vegas. Not the Vegas of the Strip. No, this is not the glitzy Vegas. This is the side that nobody really sees, nobody really visits, and that's where he grew up. I also love the way he's addressing his gender. You know, he's, he describes himself as pansexual. While everyone is minus, you could call me multiply. I think he, he loves this idea that you really can't put a finger on gender. You can't really put a finger on race in terms of what, you know, he represents. He is representing the other, the outsider, and he's very comfortable in that role. There's a lot of attitude at the start of it. Reminds me a lot of uh, early Green Velvet out of Chicago. You mentioned Chicago House. I think there's a lot of that sort of style there, a lot of that attitude. But what really is a revelation to me is the singing in the latter half of the record. The record becomes darker and more ballady in the second half and a lot more introspective. And there's a song on here called Darker where he really shows another one of his influences. You know, he he started singing in church, you know, and that those gospel roots come through in the vocals on this record. I think this is a, a top-notch debut record from Shamir. It's a buy it all the way. Yeah, I double your buy it, Greg. Let me expand on some of those references you made. You're talking about grungy synthesizer and lots of cowbell. I think uh, Nick Sylvester, the the producer, is definitely paying homage to the DFA label, James Murphy, right? Also, uh, you talked about Frank Ocean, also a very brave artist who came forward to talk about his sexuality very frankly. Shamir Bailey is not that frank yet. He's, he's leaving it open, you know, what his sexuality is, but it's clear that he didn't fit in in North town in Vegas growing up, you know, because of his race, because of whatever sexuality he had. He was the kid that got picked on. <laughs> He's an African-American kid sitting playing country on an acoustic yeah. guitar, right? And, and this album is about being proud to not fit in. I think that's what links it to Chicago house music, which also was was pansexual in its embrace of sexuality, had the, the gospel roots, but also the celebratory disco thing. I'm a demon baby. This is my favorite line. You're the beast that made me. Hmm. Uh, I, he's a beast I'm all behind. A double buy it for Shamir. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us takes a trip to the desert island, puts a song on the jukebox we can't live without. Greg, what do you got? When we reviewed this uh, Shamir record, Jim, it started getting me thinking about place and how geography can influence a record and how a record can take you to a place even though you're not really there. It's almost like a travelogue through the headphones. And it started me thinking about an artist who had some of her greatest recordings in the 60s, Marlena Shaw. She was a jazz-steeped singer, a lot of vocal chops that came into the worlds of R&B and soul in the 60s and started recording for the Cadet Records label in Chicago, a subsidiary of, of chess uh, devoted more to the jazz side of things. And she was working with a wide variety of influences, especially on her second record, which I think is one of the overlooked gems of of that era. She was as good as any of the singers uh, during that period of time, but never really got the commercial push that she deserved. She had that soul feel with a with a with jazz scat singing. She never oversang. She combined influences like Brill Building Pop, Blues. She was covering soul music and also protest music. 
the uh, second album that she recorded for Cadet had a song on it called Woman of the Ghetto, which was really a signature song of, of the civil rights era in the late 60s. But I want to talk about her most well-known song, uh, California Soul. It was recorded by some really heavy hitters, an Ashford and Simpson song that was a, a minor hit for the Fifth Dimension, also recorded by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. In fact, the last one of the last duets that that tremendous duo recorded in the 60s. But I think Shaw's version is the one, and it has been proven out by time. It has been sampled numerous times in the decades since. And what makes it so great? You know, here it is, Chicago Recording Studio, but you think you're in California when you're hearing this song. It feels like the new world opening up for you. And part of that, part of the reason for that is not only Shaw's vocals, but Charles Stepney's string arrangement on this song. Charles Stepney was a underrated, behind-the-scenes heavy hitter in a lot of those soul records coming out of the Midwest in, in the 60s and 70s. He had this, what he called an orchestral, psychedelic soul sound with groups like Rotary Connection, later on worked with Earth, Wind, and Fire, and here he really steps to the fore with a great vocalist, Marlena Shaw. Here's California Soul on Sound Opinions. Like a sound you hear that lingers in your ear But you can't forget from sundown to sunset It's all in the air, you hear it everywhere No matter what you do, it's gonna grab a hold on you California soul
California Soul from Marlena Shaw, Greg's Desert Island Jukebox pick. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we're going to devote a show to uh, some of the big releases coming out in the late spring, early summer. We're going to give reviews to them all. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Adam Yaffe recorded Passion Pit. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. My name is Dan, and I live in Minneapolis. I'm calling in regards to the Sound Opinions episode, which featured Against Me. You left us with a question of what we think of transition of uh, the lead singer of Against Me, and I think that it's awesome, especially for someone who's lived so long and at least somewhat of a spotlight has got to be even more difficult. And I, I like that you implored her to um, explain the transition a little bit to people that don't understand it, but I've been fortunate enough to have close friends that have undergone that experience. And so I, I do have an understanding of it. So I'm just calling in to say that I think it's totally badass. Hi, Jim and Greg. It's Chris from Logan Square in Chicago. I'm just calling in about the brand versus band issue. And I hate a, a cash and reunion tour as much as the next guy, but I think it's a, a fallacy to say that all that we care about when we listen to music is just the music itself. I think the brand, all the stuff that goes around the music, is oftentimes just as important. And, and I actually think that Laura Jane Grace, who you had on the show just last week, is a fantastic example of this. Her music is amazing, but her personal story, the heroism that she's showed these last few years, is just as important to many of the people that listen to it as those songs. You know, that music is fantastic, but I don't think you can completely separate her personality, her journey, from what people feel about those records. Thanks, guys. Great show as always. Keep on keeping on. This is Maureen in Chicago giving a belated thank you for your recent Mother Days program. I'd like to make a recommendation for your future Father's Day program, probably coming up soon. Donnie Iris and the Cruisers of Love is Like a Rock fame put out a CD in 1993 titled Foot Soldier in the Moonlight. On it, Donnie sings a sword and a shield in a cappella style that touches on a father's hopes for a daughter leaving home. I can't protect her anymore from the monsters in the fields. But a father's love is so real, a power she will always feel. 
I believe you both will find it quite moving. Thanks again for your usual great programming. Just listening to the interview that you guys did with Peter Huck. Uh, he's definitely one of my influences. I've been listening to Joy Division and New Order as long as I can remember. And uh, it's an interesting point that you guys brought up about the divorce between the bandmates. Because I kind of feel like, as a fan, I like one of the kids, you know, like torn between the mom and the dad. You know, the dad being Peter Hook and the mom being the rest of New Order. Listening to the music, I'm a little torn. I, I feel like I'm deceiving Peter Hook a little by listening to New Order or or vice versa if I'm listening to Peter Hook. So great interview and uh, great stuff. I really enjoyed listening to it. Thanks, guys. Keep it up. I want to see my family, my wife and child waiting for me. Drops to your home, I've been so alone, you see. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.